And it is good to see you, those of you who've joined us here in the worship center, and also great to have folks join us online. I know that as uh, this COVID surge has uh, kind of gripped our world, our nation, our community, that there are probably a lot of folks who would like to be here in the room who, uh, for one reason or another, aren't able to be with us, and some even have COVID or some in their household has COVID. So if you're joining us online, we're praying for you. And can I just encourage us all to be praying for friends and neighbors and family members who uh, are battling COVID right now, and to think about how some uh, folks are affected that serve our community, like people in the medical field and first responders and educators, I'm sure there are more, but to think about and pray for the needs of these folks, and some of them have gotten sick, which has caused, of course, uh, people to work overtime and extra hours, and so there's a lot of weariness and, and uh, a lot of folks who are tired, and, and uh, just we, we need to be praying for our neighbors and our friends, and this is a great opportunity for the Church of Jesus Christ to show love to our neighbors and coworkers and to reach out with compassion and check on others, and so I just encourage you to do that. I want to make a few announcements related to staff. None of them involve any staff members leaving, but there are some adjustments that uh, began on January 1st and some things that will still take place that I want to mention to you. Uh, not too long ago, but uh, earlier last year, uh, Pastor Curtis Johnson, who serves as our executive pastor, uh, mentioned to me that he would probably be stepping back from that role, staying on our team as a pastor, but stepping back from that role sooner than I might have thought. And then uh, just a couple months ago, he let me know that that would take place here in uh, in 2022. So on uh, December 31st, he completed his role as our executive pastor and has moved into a different role on our team, and I'll explain that in a moment. But a lot of folks don't even really know what an executive pastor does, so I want to mention that in the way we're set up here at Calvary. Of course, Christ is the head of the church. We know that from the New Testament. And then each local church is to have a group of, of wise individuals who lead, and that's our elders here at Calvary. They meet monthly and for several hours to kind of set the direction and the, the philosophy and and all of, of the church based on God's word. And then I serve as an elder and as the senior pastor and lead pastor here at Calvary. I work to uh, work with our team and our staff and our pastors and all the volunteers in our church body to accomplish the mission and vision God has given us as a church in his word and through the elders' leadership. So I answer directly to them and they do my annual review. And then the executive pastor serves directly under the senior pastor in our, our uh, organizational setup. And um, actually, the, the executive pastor is the only person that answers directly to me other than my administrative assistant. And so uh, Curtis has served in the 13 plus years I've been here as the executive pastor. He actually took on that role about 16 years ago. And uh, he oversees all the various ministries, the budgets, the, the pastoral team, all of that. And uh, we work together a lot, and it's been a great journey. Uh, I've enjoyed working with Curtis on a daily basis, but he has acted as that executive pastor, chief of staff, overseeing the day-to-day -day operations of everything in terms of the ministry here at Calvary. And I'm so grateful for his service, and I want to say thank you. He's down here in the front. Thank you, Curtis, for serving in that capacity in 16 years. And... Um, you know, when, if you get to know Curtis, and many of you have interacted with him over the years, but as you get to know him, and our staff has found that uh, he is a man who has a businessman's mind, but a shepherd or a pastor's heart, and that comes across and is needed so much in that role for that kind of a blend, and um, uh, he's done a great job in that capacity. He and Cheryl Lynn, his wife, have been a part of Calvary for almost 30 years, right around 30 years. 
Uh, he joined the staff 16 years ago, but he served as an elder. They've been involved. They've invested their, their time, their talents, and their treasures in the ministry here. They raised their two sons uh, here. Uh, their oldest, Thomas, and his wife, Andrea, are doctors in uh, Denver, Colorado. Uh, they just had their first child, the first grandchild for Curtis and Sherilyn. Henry's about three or four months old now. I'm sure that's part of this transition for him and stepping back from this role in our leadership. Um, and uh, their other son, Connor, and his wife, Jessica, are a part of the Calvary family. And Connor serves as our middle school pastor and is doing a great job in ministry here in that capacity. And so the Johnson family has been a special part of the Calvary family for three decades. And Curtis's leadership in these last 16 years has been really critical for us. And so we're very thankful. On behalf of the staff, the elders, and the congregation, thank you. And I want to thank Cheryl Lynn, too, because um, the role he had is one that isn't just you clock in certain times. It's something you wear all the time. So if there was a crisis in this area of ministry or something happened, a, a leak in the building or anything went on, people are reaching out to Curtis 24-7 uh, weekends and everything for help. And uh, that's disrupted their lives and their schedules a lot. And I know that uh, uh, that's uh, put them in a, a lot of times some dis discomfort in terms of their own schedule. But thank you for allowing those disruptions, Cheryl. And even so, um, he's a, a very early morning person. She's a very late night person. So if he was already in bed and something happened, I knew don't even try to call him. Call Cheryl Lynn. She'll get him up and let him know what's happening. So thank you both uh, for the way in which you poured into the Calvary family. Uh, he will continue as one of our pastors, and he's going to be overseeing the area of adult ministries and some other areas of ministry. And over the next couple of years, we're going to use him to initiate some things and to step in where there might need some interim pastoral leadership. And so we continue to have his heart and his life and, and uh, him pouring into our church family. So in the interim, starting January 1st, our teaching pastor, Brian Howard, has become the interim executive pastor and teaching pastor. And I'm excited about that. Part of Curtis's thinking, as we were talking several months ago, was he also wanted to provide space for next generation leaders to step up. And so Brian is a part of that. And uh, Pastor Troy will also step up a bit and help Brian and assist Brian in areas of our ministry support services, like our buildings, our budgets, our technology, all those kinds of things. And so Brian will serve in that capacity for the next six months. We're excited about that. I'm looking forward. Brian's been working with Curtis and I, uh, with Curtis and me closely for a couple of years now. And uh, this is a natural transition, but I look forward to working with Brian on a day-to-day -day basis, just like I have with Curtis. Although I, I've been a little, uh, you know, sad of this transition, mourning the transition in this great uh, leadership time I've had with Curtis, I'm also excited about the new opportunity to walk on a day-to-day -day basis with Brian as we lead together uh, with our pastors and our elders. And then uh, Brian will serve in that capacity, and in July, uh, a pastor who was on our team before will rejoin us as our executive pastor, uh, Dr. Uh, Jason McMaster who served as the middle school pastor here and oversaw college ministry, who was a teacher and also a leader at Oaks Christian for uh, quite a few years. Uh, he will rejoin our team. He and Jenny both grew up here, um, and they left our area four years ago as he became the headmaster at uh, Landmark Christian Academy in the Atlanta, Georgia area. They've been there about four years. And as uh, Curtis indicated he wanted to step back from this role and it was the right timing before the Lord for him. Uh, some doors opened for us to have some conversations with Jason and uh, we're really excited about this and we'll, you get to know their family again as he arrives this summer. 
There is a, a video that Pastor Brian and I got to make with Jason just a couple weeks ago when he was home for the holidays visiting family here. And uh, that video is, will be available this afternoon on our social media and on our website so you can hear more about Jason's family, what's been going on, hear Brian and Jason and I talk about what's coming. Because what's coming even this year, our elders and our leaders are working on our new vision called Calvary 2030, looking forward to the year 2030 and what God would have for us. We're seeking God's guidance and direction on that. We plan to introduce that in the fall of this year. And Jason will become a key part of that as we move forward. And so you can see that video that's available. And one other transition is Pastor Gina Spivey, who has served for a number of years as our special adult ministries pastor, will now serve as our family ministries pastor. So she will oversee birth through high school, and we have a great team and great staff and a bunch of volunteers and volunteer leaders in this area of ministry from birth through high school. And if you know Gina, you know that she loves rallying volunteers to help the next generation get to know Jesus and grow in him. And uh, one of the great things about this, too, is that our special abilities ministry is a part of our family ministries, so she'll be able to keep her focus and her leadership and her heart there with the families and volunteers in the special abilities ministry. Uh, she, too, has a video that she's releasing this week that'll go out to parents that will be available on our social media just explaining uh, her heart and vision and passion for this vital area of Calvary's ministry. And Calvary, for over 45 years, has emphasized how we reach the next generation for Jesus, and she's going to become a critical part of that for us um, moving forward. All right, so those are the staff transitions I wanted to update you on. Then I want to update you on our Christmas offering. Last week, Pastor Troy, who's done a great job throughout the month of December sharing with you our Christmas year of end giving uh, goals and what the offering looked like, he talked about throughout December and even last week gave us an update, this important uh, offering. He mentioned over those weeks that our goal has been $2.6 million. That includes some generations, capital improvements on our our campus to help sharpen our tools for ministry, and also then a large chunk of this was to help our general fund ministry here at the end of the year and uh, to support things like our missionaries around the world and the ministries on our campus. Last week, he reported to you what we had received through December 27th. And he mentioned that we had $2.8 million that had come in, uh, so $200,000 over our goal. But there were some days left from December 27th through the 31st at 11.59 p.m. And after the books were closed with all of that, I want to report to you that that $2.6 million goal has been reached and exceeded. We received $3,499,781. That is incredible. And let me reassure you that one of the things we see that as in our leadership of our elders and pastors is that we started a budget in September. At the end of December, we're a third of the way through our annual ministry budget. It'll end in August, and we continue to work the plan we laid out, even as God has provided these resources. And um, we know things go in ups and downs, and so we want to be good stewards as we move forward. But it also helps us understand uh, that, that God has provided the fuel and resources to begin to move forward to that 2030 vision. And so we see this as the good hand of God on our ministry here. And as all of us continue to be faithful in giving, God will provide even in the last uh, two-thirds of, of this uh, budget year. But of course, we just want to stop and praise God. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. 
and just want to thank him for his kindness. He has taken care of the needs of Calvary for over 45 years, and he continues to demonstrate his grace to us even in this way. And I want to say thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your willingness to pray about what God would have you give. There wasn't one $2 million gift, but there were gifts of all sizes coming from all parts of our body as people gave to the Lord's work here. And uh, we had some folks who hadn't been able to give, who had gone through seasons of difficulty that stepped back in to give during the season, let us know that. And then we had some new givers join us in the end of the year giving. Uh, but we just see this again as God's good hand and a reminder that he takes care of us each step of the way. He takes care of our individual families and he takes care of us as a church family. I just wanna ask you to join me in praying for those affected by COVID, pray for these staff transitions and to uh, praise God for his continued provision for us. Would you pray with me? Father, we know there are neighbors and friends and coworkers, maybe even folks in our own household who've been battling colds and flus and even the Omicron uh, variant of COVID. We pray, Lord, that if there are folks who are joining us online right now who are suffering with those effects of COVID and colds, I just pray that you would give them strength, help them to be patient, help them to be wise. I pray, Father, for those who work in fields that serve our community and areas like education and medicine and first responders. We pray that, uh, Lord, you would uh, give those who have to put in extra hours and extra time strength emotionally and physically. We pray that... Uh, Lord, you would protect those who serve our community in these ways. We also ask, Father, that you'd help us as the followers of Jesus to shine brightly during this time. We pray, uh, Father, for the transitions in our leadership. Thank you for Curtis and his faithfulness in leading here at Calvary. And we pray that you'd bless Brian as he leads forward and Jason as he joins us in July. And pray for Pastor Gina in regards to the family ministries. Uh, thank you for those who willingly serve you and for their faithfulness to you. Father, we also just stop to pause and recognize that you provide every penny, and we want to be good stewards and invest every penny you provide to this ministry, to this church, to further your kingdom, to spread the gospel. And Father, may we always recognize that every good and perfect gift comes into our families, comes into our church family from you. And I thank you, Father, for this church family that leans in to make sure that Jesus is lifted up and the good news of Christ is proclaimed and the love of Christ is shown uh, through this body. Uh, bless our time together. Thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. We begin this week a study in the book of Ephesians, simply calling this study in the book of Ephesians in Christ. If you want to open your Bibles or go on your mobile device to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1. And if you open the book, you, of course, start at chapter one of these six chapters, and you read verses one and two, and you get the introduction to the book. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very similar opening to many of the letters that Paul writes, and specifically writes to churches, and he writes from a prison where he was in prison for preaching the gospel. And uh, this book is going to be a real treasure to us, I think, in these next several weeks as we start in chapter 1 next week and go to chapter 2 and 3 and so on and just see what God wants to do to grow us and to make us more like Jesus as we unpack the wonderful truths of this little book. Our friends at the Bible Project have given us some great materials when we're introducing a book, and they have a great overview video of the book of Ephesians, helping us understand the background and the structure and the emphasis and the themes. And so watch this video from the Bible Project to get an overview of the book of Ephesians. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. 
the story of how Paul came to the city of Ephesus is really interesting. You can go read about it in Acts chapter 19. Ephesus was a huge city. It was the epicenter of worship for most of the Greek and Roman gods. And for over two years, Paul had a really effective missionary presence there, and lots of people became followers of Jesus. Years later, after being imprisoned by the Romans, Paul wrote this letter. The movement of thought in the letter divides into two really clear halves. In the first half, Paul is exploring the story of the gospel, how all history came to its climax in Jesus and in his creation of this multi-ethnic community of his followers. The second half of the letter is linked to the first by the word, therefore. And here Paul explores how the gospel story should affect how we live every part of our life story personally, in our neighborhoods and communities, and in our families. So let's dive in, and we can see how Paul develops all of this. Chapter 1 opens with a beautiful Jewish-style poem where Paul praises God the Father for the amazing things that he has done in Christ Jesus. From eternity past, the Father has purpose to choose and bless a covenant people. And think here, the family of Abraham and Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And through Jesus now, anyone can be adopted into that family. Jesus' death covers our worst sins, our worst failures, and in Jesus we find God's grace. In fact, Paul says, that grace has opened up a whole new way for us to understand every part of our lives. He says in chapter 1, verse 10, that God's purpose was to unify all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, which is a title that means Messiah. God's plan was always to have a huge family of restored human beings who are unified in Jesus the Messiah. This divine purpose became clear, Paul says, when we were first made into that family. And here he's referring to ethnic Jews in the family of Abraham. But then Paul talks about how you, and here he means non-Jews, you all heard about Jesus and the salvation through him. And you were also brought into this family by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so here he's referring to the events told in the stories of Acts about how God's Spirit brought together Jew and non-Jew into one family in Jesus. It's just like God promised to Abraham long ago. Notice also how in this poem, Paul begins by talking about God the Father, but then about Jesus the Son, and then here at the end about the Spirit. All three work together as Paul tells the story of the gospel. It's really cool. After the poem, Paul responds with a prayer. He prays that these followers of Jesus would not just know about, but personally experience the power of the gospel, that they would be energized by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and placed him as the exalted head of the whole world. Now in chapter two, Paul goes back and he elaborates on some key ideas from the poem in chapter one, especially God's grace and this new multi-ethnic family of Jesus. He begins by retelling the story of how these non-Jewish Christians came to know Jesus. Before hearing about Jesus, they were physically alive, but they were spiritually dead. They were trapped in a purposeless life of selfishness and sin, and they were deceived by dark spiritual forces of evil. But amazingly, God in his great love and mercy, he saved them, he forgave all of their sins, and he joined their lives to Jesus's resurrection life, and he's brought them back to life too. And so now, having been created as new human beings through Jesus, they have the joy of discovering all of the new calling and purposes and tasks that God has set before them. Not only have they been shown God's grace, they've also been invited into a new family. 
before hearing about Jesus, these non-Jewish people, they were not just cut off from God, they were cut off from his covenant people, the family of Abraham. And for a really practical reason, the commands of the Sinai covenant, they formed like a boundary line around the family. They were like a barrier that kept most non-Jewish people away. But in Jesus, the laws of the Torah have been fulfilled and the barrier is removed. The two ethnic groups have become, as Paul puts it, a new unified humanity that can live together in peace. So Paul goes on in chapter three to marvel at the unique role that he got to have in spreading this good news to non-Jewish people. And even though he's in prison, he's thanking God for the chance he's had to see this covenant family grow so huge. So Paul closes the first half of the letter with another prayer. This time he prays that Jesus' followers would be strengthened by God's spirit to simply grasp and comprehend the love that Christ has for his people. The second half of the letter begins with Paul shifting gears and he starts challenging the reader to respond to the gospel story by how they live their own life story. So he starts in chapter four with just the everyday life of the church. The church is a big family with lots of different kinds of people, but he emphasizes that they are one. And one is a key word in this chapter. They are one body that's unified by one spirit. They have one Lord with one faith. They have one baptism. They believe in one God. That's a lot of unity. However, Paul says unity is not the same thing as uniformity. He goes on to explore how Jesus's new family consists of lots of very, very different kinds of people, but they're all empowered by the one Holy Spirit, each using their unique talents and passions to serve and to love each other and to build up the church. And here he uses two really cool metaphors. One is building up the church as a new temple. And the second is that they are all becoming a new humanity with Jesus as the head. And this new humanity is a metaphor he's going to then run with for the next couple chapters. Paul challenges every Christian to take off their old humanity, like a set of old clothes, and to put on their new humanity in which the image of God is being restored. And he then goes on into this long section where he compares this new and old humanity. So instead of lying, new humans speak truth. Instead of harboring anger, they peacefully resolve their conflicts. Instead of stealing, new humans are generous. Instead of gossiping, they encourage people with their words. Instead of getting revenge, new humans forgive. Instead of gratifying every sexual impulse, new humans cultivate self-control of their bodily desires. Instead of getting drunk, new humans come under the influence of God's spirit. And he spells out what that influence looks like in four different ways. The first two have to do with singing, singing together, but also singing alone. And this is really interesting that the first thing that Paul thinks of about how the spirit works in the lives of Jesus' people is singing and music. The third sign of the spirit's influence is being thankful for everything. And the fourth is that the Spirit will compel Jesus' followers to put themselves underneath others and to elevate others as more important than themselves. And Paul actually expands on this fourth point by showing how it works in Christian marriage. So you have a wife who follows Jesus. She is called to respect and to allow her husband to become responsible for her. 
And the husband is called to love his wife and to use his responsibility to lay down his selfish agenda and to prioritize his wife's well-being above his own. And Paul says it's this kind of marriage that's actually reenacting the gospel story. The husband's actions mimic Jesus and his love and his self-sacrifice. The wife's actions mimic the church, which allows Jesus to love her and to make her new. Paul then applies the same idea to children and parents as well as slaves and masters. Paul closes out the letter by reminding these Christians of the reality of spiritual evil. These are beings and forces that will try to undermine the unity of Jesus's people and to compromise their new humanity. And so Paul challenges them to stand firm and to put on this metaphorical set of body armor, which he describes in detail. And Paul has drawn all of these pieces of body armor from the book of Isaiah and how Isaiah depicted the messianic king. And so now, as the Messiah's followers, we need to make the Messiah's attributes our own since we make up Jesus's body. Practically, I think Paul means for Christians to begin to form habits, proactively using prayer and the scriptures and our relationships with each other to help us grow and mature as followers of Jesus. And that's the letter to the Ephesians. Very powerful. It's where Paul summarizes the whole gospel story and how it should reshape every part of our life story. That really is the theme of this book, is how the gospel story laid out in the first three chapters talks about our lives and our story and how the gospel story affects every part of our story. Uh, If you'd like to see that video, it's going to be available on our social media later today on our website, Uh, again, from the Bible Project, an incredible resource. Let me just give you an overview of this book, and I want to draw a few principles out in this introductory message. Next week, we'll dive into chapter one, but I want to still talk about the big picture of this book. Ephesians is the book, of course, we're talking about. And one of the key phrases that comes up in a variety of ways in this book is in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And chapters one through three deal with our standing in God in heaven before Christ. And chapters four through six deal with uh, how we walk on earth today in Christ. Now let's look at some of the distinctions here in these two breakdowns of the book. The first three chapters give us a doctrinal theological understanding the last three chapters are practical about our lives and our homes and our workplaces and how we relate to each other. In chapters one through three, there's an emphasis on how we stand in Christ in heaven forever. In chapters four through six, it's how we walk in Christ on earth today. Our relationship with God is emphasized in the first half of the book. Our relationship with others is emphasized in the second half of the book. Perfect in Christ's righteousness is emphasized in the first three chapters. We're perfect in Christ's righteousness as his children, but putting on Christ's righteousness practically in our lives every day is a part of the last half of the book. And then the first three chapters are all about who God says I am in Jesus. The last three chapters emphasize who God transforms me to be in Jesus, that I can be more like Christ. And so this book is, is in many ways very profound and very deep, and then in some ways very simple and very clear. As we look at the book, I want us to understand that when we fully grasp how we stand in heaven, it radically impacts how we walk on earth. When you understand who you are in Christ as his child, before God, now and forever, it impacts how you live in your attitudes, in your thought life, in your behaviors, in your relationships here on earth. 
Well, let's look first of all, as we just do an overview of this book to draw some principles for our lives today in these few moments, at how we stand in heaven. How we stand in heaven before God in Christ. Now, right away, I want to say, when we talk about we, I want to talk about who the we is. The we, how we stand, we're talking about the followers of Jesus Christ, those who have been saved by Christ. That we is what we saw in the video, those of us who are in that we, we were spiritually dead, trapped in our sin. But when we put our faith in God's plan of redemption and salvation, Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross for us, what he accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection for us, when we put our faith in him, his grace saved us and made us alive in Christ, gave us new life and forgiveness and a relationship with God. And so we talk about the we, we're talking about all of us who have found salvation in Christ through his finished work. And we have a relationship with God because of that. And let me just invite any of you who maybe haven't yet come to that place where you've rested your faith in Jesus to do that today. We'd love to explain more about what that means or answer any questions you have. We'd love to help you walk in those first steps of faith uh, as you come to Jesus. You can text the name Jesus to the number below me on the screen and uh, we'll connect with you some information. We'll follow up from our team and just make sure you know what it means to be alive in Christ, to be a part of that we, the, the family of God. And so just text the name Jesus to that number on the screen and we'll connect with you and follow up and, and help you. But let's look at how we stand in heaven before God in Christ. What does God see of those of us who are followers of Jesus? Well, there are four things that I want us to see that are stated in the first chapter, but get repeated in chapters two and three about our standing before God. First of all, how we stand before God in heaven is that we are forgiven. We are washed by the blood of Christ. We are washed by the blood of Christ. Early in this book, it talks about our redemption in Jesus and about how it was through the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf and through his being our substitutionary sacrifice that we have forgiveness. It's through his blood that our sins are washed away. In Ephesians chapter one and verse seven, we read, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. You know the old song, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We are forgiven. When God looks at us, he sees us washed by the blood of Christ. Secondly, we are perfect. We are perfect as God looks at us. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The scriptures say that when Jesus died on the cross, my sin and your sin was placed upon him and he took the judgment we deserve as our sin was placed upon him. But the scriptures also say that when we put our faith in Christ, we're not only forgiven of our sin, but we are then clothed with the goodness and the righteousness of Christ so that when God looks at us in our position and standing before him in heaven now and forever, he sees us clothed in the goodness and the righteousness of Jesus. In verse four of Ephesians one, we read, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Paul would say to the Philippian believers that we stand before God in his righteousness, which is by faith in Jesus Christ. He would tell the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter five that God made Jesus to be sin for us, the one who knew no sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Think about that. 
As God sees you, he sees you as forgiven. He sees you as clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Talk about grace. That's amazing grace. The third thing we need to understand about how we stand in heaven before God in Christ is that we are secure. We are secure. We're sealed with the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit is given to us as the seal of this redemptive plan, this redemptive deal that God has given us in his amazing grace. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, we read, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The moment we put our faith in Christ, we are forgiven and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and then we are given the Holy Spirit in that moment and the Holy Spirit is given with us as the presence of God, as the seal of this this great work of God in our lives until we are in the presence of God himself. We are secure, we are sealed. At the beginning of the service, as Pastor Carolyn started the service, she read Romans 8, 35 to 39. It says, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. I've asked Michelle to read that at the conclusion of the service to remind us that we are secure. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Jesus said in John chapter 10, no one can pluck you out of my Father's hand. That's who we are positionally before God now and forever. I like how... Uh, R.C. Sproul said this years ago, we are secure not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because he holds tightly to us. Praise God that we are forgiven. We are perfect. We are secure. And fourthly, we are together, united with the body of Christ. You're not alone. That God has not just called us out of the world alone to try to deal with, with, with the things of this world and to represent him, but we're together. We're united with our brothers and sisters in Christ. In Ephesians 2, again, in this first part of the book, there is this emphasis of how we are part of a called-out community. We're the living temple. We're the body of Christ. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20 says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which Christ Jesus himself, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. You know, we are different people from different backgrounds, and we may have different views on certain things, but our unity is found in Jesus Christ. And so as we stand before God, he sees us not alone, all by ourselves. He sees us as forgiven, as perfect, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, secure, sealed with the Spirit, and united together with our brothers and sisters in Jesus This really is our identity we're talking about, our identity of who we are, even in this world. Our identity is wrapped up in our position and our posture before God in Christ. Jesus even said that the proof of us being his followers would be how we love each other in this united body. Here's the first key when we talk about how we stand in heaven before God. As we embrace our identity in Christ, we flourish in life. 
The more we embrace that identity of who we are in Christ before God, now and forever, settled now and forever, positionally before him, the more we grasp that and embrace that, the more we can flourish in joy and peace, satisfaction in this world, even when things are going bad or even when things are confusing, even when there's tension and confusion, disappointment and hurt, we can find great joy and peace in life. As we embrace our identity in Christ, we flourish in life. A number of years ago, author Neil Anderson put together a hundred true identity markers of followers of Christ, and they are a hundred statements in Scripture of who we are in Jesus. And we are posting that on our social media and putting it on our website. You'll see on our main website uh, right after this service, you can see uh, that it'll say Ephesians Resources, and we're putting that list of a hundred qualities. And let me just encourage you, maybe you just hear that voice of Satan, or maybe it's the inner critic, or maybe it's from your background, your upbringing, but there's a voice inside you that says, no, you can't be forgiven. You blew it so bad. You sinned so much. You hurt so many people. There's no way you could be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. There's no way you could be secure because look at, look at how miserable you are. Look how you've blown it. Look at the mess you've made. There's no way you could be united with these people in Christ. Maybe there's a voice that's saying that to you over and over again. For you to live and love like Jesus in the world, Jesus in this world, you have to understand your identity in Christ. Then you can flourish in life. Take those identity markers that we're making available, those hundred things that Neil Anderson put together. They've got the scripture references right with them. And let God remind you of who he says you are in Jesus. Now, some people will, will say, you know, well, if that's who I am in Jesus, then, then I'm just gonna live however I wanna live. I'm just gonna live in sin. This is a license to sin, this goodness and grace of God. And Paul said, no, 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 no. If you really have a grasp of God's grace and who you are before God in heaven now and forever, you will never just live comfortably in sin. That very grace and that position you have in Christ is gonna change the way you live here on earth and, and how you behave and think and your relationships. Let's talk for just a few moments here on how we walk on earth as we think about some of the themes of the last three chapters of the book of Ephesians. Number one, we walk on earth with God. We get to talk to God in prayer. We get to open up God's word. We get to be with God's people, even allowing God's people to speak into our lives, to worship him. You see, as we walk with God here on earth, our identity in Christ shows as our lives change. There's gonna be this calling in the book to live a life that matches and, and reflects that worthy calling of our position before God in heaven forever. Our identity in Christ shows as our lives change, as we put off the old and we put on the new. Ephesians 4, to 24 says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. As we walk on earth, we walk hand in hand with God and his spirit is inside of us, transforming us and changing us, our thoughts, our attitudes, changing our, our behaviors and our patterns of life and our interactions with others, changing us and molding us and making us more like Jesus. Secondly, we walk on earth in community. As I said, we don't walk alone. Our unity in Christ shows as our love grows. This world is divided. It's angry. It's arguing. It's shouting. 
There is this polarization in our nation and in our world and in our community. Can you imagine what it would be like if people had disagreements on secondary issues but were focused on Christ and Christ alone and that was their burning passion and they loved each other, what that would do? Jesus said, that will be the proof that you are actually my disciples if you can love each other. If you can set aside some of the selfish things and some of the, the, the perspectives on minor things and major on the major things and keep the focus and keep your eyes on Jesus and you can love each other. That's gonna, that's gonna be like a magnet that's gonna draw people to Jesus. In community, we walk here on earth. Ephesians 4, 2 and 3 says, be completely humble and gentle. Pastor Brian did a great job last week talking about being humble. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You're making every effort to stay united with your brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to fight for unity, to love each other. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We're to be known for our love for each other. And as that love spills out into the world, people will be drawn to our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. As we walk here on earth, we walk with God. We walk in community. Can I urge you, if maybe you haven't been in a small group in a long time, or your small group dissolved recently, or, or you, you've never been a part of a small group, this is a great time to join. You say, well, I don't, I don't need those other people in my life, but those people may need you. It's about loving others, not just what we can get out of Christian community, but what do we put into it? And so speak to Pastor Carolyn and her team at one of those tables at the doors on your way out or, or go online and join those opportunities coming up in the next week to launch a group, to be a part of a group, to speak in the lives of other people. We do this in community. We are not alone. Thirdly, we not only walk with, on earth with God in community, but for others. This isn't for us. It's for the good of others and God's glory. It's for others. You see, our clarity in Christ shows as our light shines. The clarity of who God is and how he's revealed himself, his truth, the clarity of his values and his kingdom, those values shine through us. We live in a world that is dark with despair and lacks hope. And we get to be the image bearers of Christ. We get to take the light of Christ and let it shine through our lives as we live in love like Jesus more and more. Ephesians 5.8 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the world. Live as children of light. We're going to see, as we've now, right now we just look at the big picture of this book, and we get deep into these chapters, we're going to see the practicality of understanding who we are before God and then how we live in this world. And there is a clarity and a distinction that can flow from our lives so that people see Jesus in us. How we walk on earth with God in community for others. What's the second key here? The first key was that as we embrace our identity in Christ, we flourish in life. The second key is this. As we live out our identity in Christ, we live it out. Like the last three chapters of this book emphasize, others can flourish in life. As they see the clarity of Christ, the light of Christ, they see the love of Christ, they see God changing and transforming us, they are drawn to Christ and they can come to know him as Savior. They can grow in him and flourish in life too. As we live out our identity in Christ, others can flourish in Christ because of the testimony we have in the world. Let me go back to that original statement. This kind of summarizes the book of Ephesians. When we fully grasp how we stand in heaven, 
it radically impacts how we walk on earth. Maybe we need to spend some time focusing on those identity markers that uh, Neil Anderson has put together from God's Word about who we are as God's children. We've got to believe who God says we are, not that inner voice or Satan or some other voice. And once we understand our identity in Christ as the forgiven, perfect, secure, together followers, his family, then we get to walk with God in community for the sake of others in such a way that we shine for Jesus wherever we go. Have you fully grasped who you are in Christ? Our journey together in Ephesians is going to allow us all to get a fresh glimpse of the incredible grace that is ours because of who we are in Jesus and then how we live out that grace and that reality in our everyday lives. But it comes down to understanding who we are in Christ. On December 26th, the Chicago Bears faced the Seattle Seahawks the day after Christmas. And um, the starting first-string quarterback and second-string quarterback, Justin Fields and Andy Dalton, were both out. So they called on third-string quarterback Nick Foles, who a number of years ago as a backup quarterback led the Philadelphia Eagles to win the Super Bowl. But it had been over 364 days since Foles had even played in an NFL game. It had been more than a year since he'd led the Bears to win a game. And so he was called into this game on December 26th, and uh, the Bears... uh, had a final touchdown that would give them an opportunity to tie up the game, but they went for the two-point conversion, and they completed that as Nick Foles completed that play, and uh, they won the game over the Seahawks. And so in the press conference afterwards, as players and coaches speak to the, the press, a question was asked of Nick Foles, who is a follower of Jesus Christ, and they said, you know, what's it like to be just the third string quarterback and have such a great victory? And Foles responded this way, it doesn't matter if you're the first string, second string, or third string, you've got to know who you are as a human being and what your identity is. It's got to be in something greater. And I've always said, mine's in Jesus Christ. When your identity... When your identity is in Jesus Christ, it's not a label of your job or anything about your life. It's I am a follower of Jesus Christ and that radically changes how I live today. I'm looking forward to our journey together in the book of Ephesians and how we're gonna grow together and that our light would shine brighter because of our experience in God's word together over the next few weeks. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote from a prison cell to those believers at Ephesus. And as we go through and unpack the truths of this wonderful book, help us to really grasp who we are in Jesus so that it can fully impact how we live our lives here on earth, as we live our lives within the community of believers, as we live in this world. We want to be light. We want to demonstrate the love and hope of Jesus. Father, we ask that you'd help us, even this week, to think about who we are in Christ. Maybe there's some folks who need to just read through these identity markers, Lord, in your word that that we're making available. May that just speak into their lives and counter some of the voices that have said, you're no good, you're a failure, you're you're, you're too sinful, you've broken too many things and too many people. Help us, Father, to see that great grace that's ours in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.